Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is our editorial team to take a look at what to expect in the year ahead on their beats. Joining us are our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and producer, Chris Cervello, who each week hosts our Cavus Ships podcast. That takes a deep dive into naval and maritime issues. And Laura Winter, who is also a contributing editor and the host of The Downlink, that gives us a thoughtful take on all things space uh, each week. Guys, Happy New Year and great to have you all on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Vago. Happy New Year, Vago. Happy New Year, Vago. Uh, happy New Year to all of you guys. Uh, I'm glad uh, everybody had a great holiday. Sadly, uh, not not long enough, but we're back. Uh, we're back at it in 2022. Um, third year that started, unfortunately, with the, the specter of the plague uh, and and COVID. And and our our hearts and minds go out to uh, everybody who's uh, continues to be afflicted or or has suffered directly uh, as a consequence of this. With more than 800,000 Americans and 5.4 million uh, worldwide, uh, sadly, who've passed. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Laura Winter, let's uh, let's start with you. Um, you know, you've been doing some very thoughtful work on the downlink uh, each week. Chris and Chris, you guys have been doing the same thing on the space side of things. Excuse me, on the naval side of things. Um, Laura, you know, you've been talking um, quite a lot about the challenges of defending satellites, where the commercial military line lies at a time when Russia has actually uh, been threatening uh, space infrastructure as it uh, moves uh, or at least builds up forces on the Ukraine border that uh, the world fears is going to culminate in uh, Moscow trying to seize even more Ukrainian territory. Obviously, there are meetings in Brussels and in Europe to try to diffuse this situation uh, between uh, NATO, the United States, uh, the Western side and Russia. Talk to us. You know, one of the big issues of 2022 uh, is the way Russia is going uh, and threatening uh, U.S. Uh, and, and allied space infrastructure. Talk to us about some of the nuanced takes that you've been taking and why this is such a big sleeper issue that actually deserves more attention in 2022. It deserves a lot more attention in 2022 and beyond um, for two reasons. One is immediate and one is long-term. The immediate is, of course, the issue that's going on in Ukraine across the border. We are able to see over the horizon whether we are operating in the air, land, or sea because of satellites. And because of that fact, Most satellite operators firmly expect that if there was ever going to be a war and that the United States would somehow be targeted in that war for whatever reason, that satellites would actually be the first, you know, hard casualty because without satellites, it it really, you know, bites in to our ability to um, command and communicate. We just, we, 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 we rely on them as part of our, our way of, of waging war and also keeping security. So that's the short term. And that is really also, you know, spreads out to NATO. Why is it so important to NATO? It's because NATO relies on our satellites. NATO also relies on France's satellites. Italy is also involved. So is Spain. So is the UK. So 
the big, you know, spacefaring nations do have their own military government satellites up there, and they too could also be targeted. So everyone's a bit mm, nervous about this. And, 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 and you were one of the first to draw actually a link uh, between the Russian anti-satellite test and why that was sort of a warning and a threat. Talk to us about uh, the details and what uh, the space folks you talk to have to say about it, because you know, after that, you've done a whole series of interesting programs that look at the legal boundaries and liabilities, right? So commercial satellites, if they're carrying military signals or performing military missions at the moment, could also get targeted, right? So you've looked at, at, at some of these, these boundaries and seams. What's the messaging that's being received globally from Russia? And how are folks responding to that threat, right, that's being also built up by Russian, Russian media that uh, American satellites could be fair game in the in the event of a future conference. That is very specifically a, a, a great question because Russian media, state-owned television, their commentators have been openly calling for the Russian state to target Western satellites to quote unquote teach the West a lesson to not mess with Russia, and that's really. How should I say? That's just really uncool. It's uncool, not just in terms <laughs> of, you know, shooting down military satellites or, or, or targeting a commercial satellite that happens to do business with the military. It could be a French commercial satellite that does business with the French military. It could be one of ours. And here in the United States, an American provider, let's say uh, Maxar, that provides uh the National Geospatial Agency imagery. Those are fair targets in war. But where things get really nasty, which goes beyond just the military aspect, which for us is like our main focus, but broadly speaking, this will affect economies and it will affect them at the global scale. We have, you know, PNT, which we all use when we're when we're talking about the maritime domain. For for, for instance, you know, where are the ships? Are is something being spoofed? It's very very important. Well, that actually goes right into banking because every time you use your credit card, it shows where that purchase was made and when it was made and how much it was for. So all those three things tie in. So when satellite start getting targeted. First of all, they serve a commercial purpose. And second of all, if they get targeted, they then blow up. And when they blow up, they send debris flying everywhere. It, they, debris will and has killed satellites. And debris has also sent the crew of the International Space Station for cover, as in actually getting into their space capsules ready to undock and flee to come back to Earth. It will also affect the Chinese space station and their astronauts, which are currently on board that space station. So right. it just has a huge global impact when these things go up and explode. Um, uh, and obviously more than 1,500 pieces of debris uh, created uh, in the recent uh, Russian anti-satellite test. And obviously China 
uh, created uh, a pretty massive debris field in indeed uh, India uh, similarly uh, in in doing any satellite tests. I want to go and and by the way, you mentioned PNT for those people uninitiated in things space. That's precision navigation and timing, which is at the heart of uh, the the entire global economy, right? Uh, not just uh, the global positioning system and 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 terrestrial navigation. Let me very briefly ask you before we go to Cavus uh, and and Cervello for their top sort of naval. Uh, story of the year uh, that we, we we expect will be the 2022 story of the year. So what does the international community do to deter Russia, right? Russia is very good at saber rattling. Russia is also very good at finding gaps and seams um, to exploit, right? And, and the laws are not as fully developed on this. So what are the ways to deter Russia from taking action, right? I mean, one of the reasons we have a space force is that Russia and China both have been up to no good in space uh, in, a, in a way that's actually terrified people who know, know, know enough uh, about what it is they're actually doing. Well, economically speaking, that's the $1 billion a day question that the space force just really hasn't answered. Though, then again, it's not really their position to answer. That is the position of the White House and the Department of State to elucidate on. And they really haven't. I mean, they're, they're talking about sanctions if Russia invades Ukraine. They're talking about kicking Russia off the SWIFT system so that they are unable to do business in dollars or with banks that do business with U.S. banks, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I, there, there is no clear vision on how to really dissuade Russia from sending up an anti-satellite weapon and shooting down a satellite if, those, if they so choose, because it's also going to have to work in their calculus. Their calculus is right now they've got 170,000 plus boots on the ground on the border with Ukraine. They're there with all of their support. So they've got medical, they've got fuel, they've got all that, and they can't just stay there forever. So something's going to have to happen soon. And uh, how, how that goes into the calculus, I don't know, but I don't think that it's I don't think there's anything to just say, hey, please don't blow up our satellites because it's really mean. Right. And, and the Russians are playing this game that, right, we, we're not going to go kinetic even if, 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 if they go uh, kinetic. And of course, the concern right. uh, is that uh, they need the ground to freeze if they're going to bring armor uh, across what is kind of marshy and, and difficult terrain. Chris and Chris, Cavus, uh, uh, why don't you start us off on, on what you think the top naval story in 2022 is going to be? Well, it won't be. Or good. stories. Yeah, well, there's never a single story, is there? Um, so uh, right now, I mean, it, uh, from the inside the Beltway point of view between the, the administration and Congress and the Pentagon, um, it doesn't look terribly good. Uh, all signals, there, there are a number of trial balloons going out right now that I find somewhat disturbing in the sense of we're talking about reducing presence and saving money. We're not going to have any, there's not going to be, certainly not going to be expansion of the Navy budget. Um, people are talking about contracting. Um, every time you hear this term, you know, this, these awful legacy programs that are out there that is such, are such a burden, that's, those are all, you know, dog whistles for shrinking the Navy. Um, this divest to invest um, attitude about, you know, decommissioning numerous ships and, and other assets uh, to reinvest into new products that are not going to be operational for 
a decade and more um, seems to be antithetical to the idea of, you know, we have pacing threats and we have to have a sense of urgency and all this. Um, we seem to be sending all the wrong signals for the most part. There are contradictions in this in the sense of AUKUS. Um, the, the, the New Deal announced in September with Australia uh, and, and, the, and the British to give nuclear submarine technology to Australia. That is an incredibly drastic move. Um, we have, we've never really shared that much nuclear technology with anybody. The only ones we have have been the, been the Brits. And that was fairly early on in the development of nuclear submarines. Um, this is a major um, turnaround and a, also you know, aimed directly at China, at the expansion of China. And so we are, you know, gathering the, you know, the old nations of empire really are reasserting themselves in some ways to oppose the expansion of uh, China. The British Queen Elizabeth Carrier Strike Group deployment of 2021 could be counted in that as well. And the British are probably going to be operating both of their new carriers together uh, this year in 2022. Details have not uh, to, uh, still to be announced. But that's actually pretty interesting. On the American front, uh, there's just lots and lots of talk about um, questioning the value of forward deployed presence and the advantages of just staying at home, essentially, and surging when you need to. That's a strategy that has never actually succeeded very well. It's been tried by a number of nations that the United States has defeated over time. But um, that's an, it, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't seem to be a, a recipe for success. Uh, it's 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 more political. So, uh, if I may, and the point you're trying to make, yeah. uh, and the point you're making is right, the national security strategy, national defense strategy, right. uh, are are in the works right now as the administration goes through uh, its first uh, budgeting uh, cycle uh, right. to try to shape uh, the program objective memorandum. Knowing where uh, Deputy Secretary Hicks comes on this. I think uh, they're not just talking about naval capability, they're talking about air capability and land capability uh, that they're uh, looking to uh, retire, right? I mean, the United States Air Force sure. can't get rid of airplanes because members of Congress, you know, are, are demanding um, that. Um, so, there, so there's always this push me, pull you between truly outdated systems and systems that are ready for retirement and other systems that have value. So this whole debate about legacy systems, uh, this is this is semantical. You can make it into a lot of things, and it's not necessarily what the speaker is talking about. It's what the speaker is trying to promote. So there. So you talk about the A-10, uh, which is a, a classic example, and with the Air Force, that the Air Force has been trying to get rid of for years, and the uh, and Congress keeps pushing back. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a legitimate question. And sometimes that happens. There are other systems when if we are trying to build up a Navy beyond 300 ships, which they have not been able to do, it's today's at 296, uh, you can't keep decommissioning large swaths of ships because you want something new. It's not right. necessarily what you want. And we're not talking about old ships either. There are strong rumors that half of the littoral combat ships, all of the freedom class ships would be retired. But right now, they've already started decommissioning the first of those ships while they're still building more of both types. That's an unprecedented situation. We've never been in a situation where we're still building ships that, that 
right. newer versions of ships that we're now taking out of service. Uh, that's that that that's without precedent. Now the stories are possibly they may de- they may decommission all of the LCSs. That's thirty some odd ships. There right. are there are talks about uh, pulling out of pulling out the high speed transports, which have all been pretty active. There there's there's talk about decommissioning the first large uh, San Antonio class of amphibious ships, multi billion a billion and a half dollar ships that that are not even twenty years old. We are. Uh, possibly even destroyers. This is probably the wrong signal for responding to the largest naval buildup anybody has seen since essentially the United States after we got into World War II or the Germans before World War I. And nobody's done this. The Chinese right now have 20 destroyers under construction, under construction, 20 of two different classes in two different shipyards. They are they are expanding at rates that are astonishing. We can't meet that. We can't build it one for one. So you're looking for for some other other way to beat that. Probably shrinking the navy, shrinking presence, shrinking our flag that's that, that that's out out there now is probably not going to send a, a signal of caution to the Chinese. It makes one wonder how can you do something like AUKUS on the one hand. And then shrink the navy. On the other hand, it's a maritime conflict. The, the, the center of our our military conflict with China right now is the South China Sea. <coughs> Excuse uh, me. It's it's other things as well, but it's definitely not the army. I'm I, I'm told I, I, in the national defense strategy, the navy's mentioned twice. We have a, we have an army general who's SecDef. We have an army general who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. What is the army doing at the center of a conflict with China? I'm I don't know, but that seems to be the the major. Navy story of the year is the assault on the Navy in the face of a the most massive maritime challenge on, we've seen since the 40s. On, on, on the uh, other hand, and I want to bring uh, Cervello in on this, uh, French Navy Vice Admiral Hervé Blégeon uh, joined us. He's the Director General of the EU military staff, and he pointed out, right, China, China is b- building, you know, every two years builds the equivalent tonnage of the entire French Navy, right? He, so he was sort of underscoring the nature of the of the competition, but Cervello, I want to bring you uh, in in on this, right? Um, I don't think anybody is anti Navy, but there is an enormous amount of frustration at the Navy um, because it is the only service who, for example, would build uh, would feel like it could get away with building three dozen LCSs with no plan to ever operate them. And let's be honest, the Navy never really had a plan, never really knew what to do with it, and was doing it to maintain political constituency, right? And there were a lot of people who would say, hey, look, you're the one who decided to spend your money on stuff that really wasn't very relevant. You guys continue to seek, for example, more F-18s, even though you guys have plenty of reserve F-18s ultimately, right? I mean, you're the guys who are making choices on what to do with your money. For the amount of money you were spending on littoral combat ships, you could have invested in shipyard capacities so that you could repair the ships uh, that that are backing up uh, on the waterfront all over the place. You could build the long range effectors you need and, and do all of the other things to be relevant. And, and Chris, as, as much as I agree with your the importance of the Navy in this theater, the Air Force is also uh, important. And, and ultimately, the United States Navy during the interwar period, as Bob Work has pointed out, wasn't present everywhere. It spent a lot of time doing complicated battle force exercises to sort of get ready for the big game. Cervello, you know, how, how is this debate going to play out when I think in Washington, there's an understanding of the importance of the Navy, but this frustration that the Navy itself 
might not be getting it and doing the right things, right? I mean, that's kind of a red flag. You know, you don't have to be Chester Nimitz to sort of go like, hang on a second. So you're building 36 of these ships with no plan to do anything but to decommission them, which is what the Navy wanted to do all along. To, to be fair, we're seeing this play out in F-35. The Navy never wanted F-35 and, and content, you know, it, you know what I mean? It, it never wanted it. And it's been a complicating factor in the program. Chris, how do you reconcile and how do you think that debate is going to play out over the coming year? Because I don't necessarily think it's purely because an army guy is, you know, sitting as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, you know, or, or that necessarily there's an army guy who's the, the Secretary of Defense. Mark Esper really liked the United States Navy when he was Defense Secretary, and he uh, happened to I, be an army yeah. secretary. I, I'm not sure I'd, eh. I'm not sure I would say that. Uh, I mean, I think he got there at the end when he was bullied into it, but trying to keep his job. But I, I'm not sure I would say that he liked the United States Navy. I'm not sure. I wouldn't say he didn't like the United States Navy, but I, I think there's plenty of blame to go around. Um, I think they will have to they may have to reconcile it right in 2022 or they may not have to um, because I think Congress is going to punt uh, on the 22 budget. I think that you'll end up with two budgets up on the Hill uh, throughout the year uh, as we're likely to go to a, a full year CR. And so a lot of these issues won't be solved this year. Um, the Department of Defense, the United States Navy, and really the country as a whole has to decide what kind of Navy do we want? What kind of Navy do we want today? What kind of Navy do we want in the future? And then we need to, um, we need to budget to that. We need to operate to that. And we need to um, work across the joint force to that. And largely uh, over the last decade, we've fallen short on that. Everybody else went to war. And the Navy kind of did its own thing. And what we're finding out is that the Navy really didn't do the things that it needed to do to prepare for a great power competition or a great power conflict. Um, and so therefore we kind of find ourselves in the situation that, that we're in. Um, for me uh, and, and on our show this past week, uh, as we kind of looked at the end of 21 and looked forward to 22, um, I think because of the challenges that Chris talked about, because of the challenges that you talked about and what, what I just alluded to, I think 22 becomes the year of the combatant commander because I think it's going to fall largely to the joint staff and combatant commanders to figure all this out. Um, you know, we say that we're in great power competition with uh, the Chinese and with Russia, but their alliances also become our problems. And so we're not going to be able to walk away from the Middle East um, just because the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have come to a conclusion. We're still going to have to deal with Iran. We're going to have to deal with Iran as a wedge issue as we deal with Russia and as we deal with China. So we're going to have to be present um, across the joint force in, uh, in CENTCOM. Uh, the Chinese, there was reporting over the holiday that the Chinese are looking for another naval base. So that means AFRICOM is going to have China implications. We've seen the Chinese operate in SOUTHCOM. So that means SOUTHCOM is going to have China. Uh, uh, and of course, UCOM is, we're going to have uh, Russia and, and really by proxy China. And oh, by the way, we have a global cyber threat from both countries. So I think it's going to be largely up to the combatant commanders and the joint staff to how to figure out how to divvy up the resources and how to uh, deal with this um, because the budget process is just too slow and too convoluted uh, to send guidance. And we really just haven't seen, regardless of whether you're Republican or Democrat, we just haven't seen the type of strategy documents that yield answers. So we're going to have to kind of make it up on the fly. Laura, let me uh, bring you in, right? I mean, we talked about the Russia uh, and uh, Russia's threat to uh, the space uh, architecture. What else do you, what are the other big stories of 2022 
uh, in on the space beat uh, from your standpoint? Well, let me just um, go off of what Cervello just touched upon, which is the budget and that there's nothing really coming out of Congress, most specifically the Senate about the budget. And this is how um, it not only affects maritime, but it affects space. Because at the moment, what we had U.S. President Joe Biden sign off on the NDAA or the National you know, Authorization, National Defense Authorization Act last week. Well, that's really great, except for the fact that there's no money. The appropriations bill isn't going through. And as of today, still, the GOP is saying that they're not even willing to sit down to negotiate until the Democrats decide to, you know, wipe off a a slate of things that the GOP doesn't like, and then they'll sit down to negotiate. Well, what the big problem with that is, is that we're all stuck, you know, all the domains, cyber too, everybody's stuck in continuing resolutions. And we have the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, saying that he fully expects that we could be stuck in a continuing resolution do loop for a year. So, when it comes to you know the big stories of 2022, what I'm looking at right now is that last year the U.S. Space Force, as well as the National Reconnaissance Office, as well as the National Geospatial Agency. Everyone was coming out and meeting commercial space operators for services, for satellites, for launch, for communications, for developing optical communications, all this really, really exciting stuff. Things that could actually, you know, make a difference to, let's say, the warfighter in the ground, especially if you're thinking about like optical communications, which can't be jammed or spoofed or dazzled very easily, right? Well, there are all these contracts. There's phase twos. There's the push to do tactical launch, which is if you need to send up a rocket right away to replace a satellite that might have you know, been taken out of commission for whatever reason. It could be a micrometeoroid. It doesn't always have to be an ASAT test. All this stuff is now on hold because there's no budget for it. And it wasn't in the FY 2021 budget. So going on to this continuing resolution do loop, it, it means that the Space Force's and everybody else's budget is stuck in 2021 levels and is unable to actually expand into do the really cool, interesting stuff that um, the Space Force, the NRO and NGA, the Space Development Agency, that they all want to do. So I think that one's going to carry on for a while until they all decide to you know, sit at a table and play nice. I think that that's going to be a big issue for for us all. Um, And it's astonishing how very thoughtful members of Congress uh, have told me, especially guys from the armed services committees, how other members just simply don't understand the impact of this. And so there's, you know, but and and ultimately, right, I mean, the name of the game is zero sum politics up there. Uh, Mm -hmm. So there are, um, you know, so even though we did have uh, a display of bipartisanship in getting an NDAA, uh, ultimately, you know, it's appropriations is where it's at, is is the point that you're trying to make. Cavus and Cervello. So what Laura talked about was what transcends uh, space, right? I mean, that's broader of, of a national challenge. But on, on, on naval issues, what are some of the other challenges uh, you two are going to be focusing on or expect will be issues? And and you can also tell me, right, what, what could be a positive surprise or what could be a negative surprise um, 
you know, in, in naval matters. Why don't you start us off, Gavis? Well, on a positive note, I think at long, 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 long last, the carrier Gerald R. Ford is going to start looking like a real aircraft carrier. She comes out of her uh, shipyard uh, period in, a, in very soon, a few months, and we'll spend the year working up for a deployment, an actual honest to God carrier deployment. No more testing. The, uh, all, this, all the elevators are certified. The uh, shock trials are, are behind her. Uh, that's all done. She's got nothing else to do now except get ready to actually be an aircraft carrier. And uh, that'll, be a, that'll be a positive. Uh, people will still throw out negative stuff. Why did it take so long? But if you just want to say, okay, regardless of where we've been, let's look forward. Um, I think that's going to be a good news story, the Gerald R. Ford. Uh, the F-35C um, aircraft, Joint Strike Fighter, <clears throat> excuse me, is uh, as of uh, today, really, uh, is now deployed on two aircraft carriers, the Carl Vinson and the Abraham Lincoln. Uh, they will probably do a nice photo op as the, as the Lincoln goes out and the, and the Vinson comes back home. They'll probably do a nice uh, photo X here in a, in a few weeks. Um, emphasizing that the Joint Strike Fighter is now at sea and is an, is an actual seaborne asset. This is the 35C model as opposed to the A, which is the Air Force aircraft, and the B, which is the, the uh, vertical takeoff aircraft operated by the Marines. Um, that's the good news. I think that'll, that'll be a big deal. Um, in the foreign navies, um, the Russians are continuing very active development of the Zircon hypersonic missile. This is a Mach 9 weapon <clears throat> that is launched from any platform, really, uh, submarines, surface ships, aircraft, and uh, land batteries. Uh, they are doing multiple tests of this weapon. Um, we're doing none. Um, very well, we're not doing none, but we're doing something. We're way behind them. Uh, they are, they're way ahead of everybody else. In this, that's a, that, that's that's one of the most threatening weapon systems that they've got going right now. Uh, China is probably going to do a carrier deployment. The second carrier, Shandong, has yet to do a real cruise. Um, it's been commissioned now for two years, so I expect that they're going to do some kind of interesting cruise, perhaps at the same time that RIMPAC, the Rim of the Pacific exercise that goes on in the middle of the uh, summer. Uh, out of Hawaii is going on. They're going to launch their th third aircraft carrier, which is a, an original design, vastly mm -hmm. different ship than what the, than the first two they've got. Uh, that's going to launch here fairly soon. So that those are the two. Those are, I think are the big stories going on right now. Cervello. So I, I think what you're going to see is uh, that this is the really the first year that uh, CNO Mike Gilday has his team, a, uh, a group of senior flags that he selected and that he worked to get in positions uh, and fleet forces out at uh, PAC fleet uh, and, and other two and three stars. So he has he finally has his team in place. Um, I think he's been in the job long enough, so I, I, I hope, but I also think that you're going to see more from the CNO this year um, as he's, you know, kind of figured out what, where he wants to take the Navy. Um, I, I guess my, my fear that we, um, is that things heat up more with the Chinese in the South China Sea. Um, you know, as we deploy more ships and as they deploy more ships, um, there is more opportunity 
uh, for, uh, you know, tactical mishaps uh, that become bigger issues. So we're, we're going to need to watch those uh, Pacific uh, deployments closely. We're going to need to watch both on both the United States and on our partner Navy side um, as the South China Sea continues to, uh, to heat up. Guys, thank you very much for your views. Um, you know, a lot more to discuss and look forward to convening panels like this over the course of the coming year so that we can take collective dives uh, on uh, big issues and bring all your expertise uh, to bear. Uh, Laura, to your point, ultimately, it's great that Congress uh, gave the Pentagon $25 billion. What's bad about it is that they spent specified some of that money to go for stuff that the Pentagon simply does not need, right? So it's not for shortage of money. It's for an inability to set priorities and act with urgency and direct the funding, in my view, to where the funding really needs to go. And I believe the services themselves bear uh, a burden to make sure that everything that they're buying is actually relevant to what needs to be done, as opposed to, well, just give me more money. I don't want oversight. Everybody shut up and let me just spend the money how I want to. And ultimately, it's one of the reasons why we're in this pickle is folks have been spending money the way they want to spend money, not maybe the way that they need to be spending the money. Anyway, guys, thanks very much. Happy New Year. Uh, glad to have you on the team. And I urge our audience to check out uh, the downlink uh, with our contributing editor, Laura Winter every week, as well as Cavus ships with none other than Christopher P. Cavus uh, and our uh, producer, Chris Cervello. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And thanks very, very much for the tremendous work uh, you're all doing every single week. Thank you. Thanks, Vago. Thank you, Vago. Thanks, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.